as is our custom, come together on one prayer. This occasion, the new moon of the hot season, the Asian hot season. It's actually the end of the hot season here in Australia. Something Lumpur Cha emphasized is the importance of meeting together regularly as a Sangha practicing. And this comes directly from the Buddha. As we know from his life story, the Buddha gave many different teachings on different occasions emphasizing the importance of having some structure to the Sangha life. However simple structure can be still be useful for a group of people living together. So he was asked, there was the occasion when the Wajian people were being threatened by King Ajatasattu and someone asked whether they would survive. And the Buddha said, if they follow these guidelines, they'll survive. If they meet together in harmony, they arrive together, they leave at the same time at the end of the meeting. If they respect their elders and so on. Then he streamlined that teaching for the Sangha and said the Sangha are the same. If they meet together in harmony, arrive together at the same time, depart together, respect the elders of the community, those who have been ordained longest and have most experience and knowledge. If they don't create new rules and practices out of nothing that haven't been there before, if they don't get rid of the existing rules and practices that have already been established and practiced, then the Sangha will be successful. And if the monks don't follow desires that lead to rebirth, follow their lustful desires, their anger and ill will, hatred, those, all these negative desires that lead to future birth, if they don't follow them, then the Sangha will be successful and strong. And if everybody practices restraint and mindfulness, the Sangha will be strong. He give, give many teachings which set the tone for our practice monastic practice, whether we're living in a small hermitage, one or two monks, or in a large community, these principles and guidelines still apply for successfully living together as a Sangha, or at least when we encounter each other, if we're living in a quiet place, when we encounter other monks, we have a system of training that works. <coughs> it's been proven since the time of the Buddha down into the modern era with Lumpur Man Lumpur Cha.
another one of those teachings that the Buddha gave for successful practice in the Sangha, but also, say, for individuals as Sangha members, just to develop perceptions, certain perceptions, which keep pointing the mind back to the Dhamma, like the perception of impermanence, perception of not-self, non-ownership, non-identification with physical and mental experience. The perception of a super, the unattractive side of things, to keep bringing that up. Perception of danger, the danger in attachment, allowing the mind to cling and attach to the candors, to the things of the world. There's a danger in that. Because it leads to more birth and more suffering. Where there's attachment, there's always suffering. Attach a lot, suffer a lot. So to see the danger in leaving the mind untrained, not addressing the causes of suffering. And a perception of cessation, and a cessation of mental states, moods, hindrances, kilesas that arise, cessation of different experiences that we go, we go through on a daily basis, changing nature of the world and the, the way things fade and cease from our consciousness or just the world around us, how things cease. People come and go, events start and then finish. So developing the perception of cessation the perception of overcoming. Even if we feel we have a lot of attachments, kilesas, lots of things disturbing our mind, disturbing our practice, at least developing the perception that these are things to be overcome and that we are practicing to overcome. The overcoming of obstacles we're meditating and not peaceful, at least develop the perception this is something that can be overcome. Others have overcome different confused states of mind, anger and ill will, sensual attachment and so on. These can all be overcome. Any problem we're facing can be overcome with the Dhamma, the Vinaya, with this training. But we have to develop that perception, at least have some confidence that things can be overcome and that we will overcome them when we develop the right causes and conditions. And the perception of liberation. This heart can be liberated from greed, anger, delusion, suffering. It's possible. And it's our goal. Our goal is freedom, emancipation, liberation. <coughs> sometimes, <coughs> sometimes we just have to remind ourselves of these 
goals and concepts, just to bring them up, refresh, uh, give ourselves fresh direction in the practice, remind ourselves why we're doing it, where we're going, what's the purpose of it. Even if they just seem like words, they can be very profound words, and there may be one or more of those particular perceptions that rings true to you. You can use it over and over again, both as a way to bring up mindfulness and insight, and just direct yourself in the practice. Obviously for Lumpur Cha, one of the ones that worked for him was just the basic perception of impermanence in Thai, the word mainair, <coughs> not sure, not certain. <coughs> Using that over and over again, applied back to his own state of mind, the candors, feelings, perceptions, memories, thoughts, sense consciousness, the body, is com constantly referring back to the uncertainty of experience. As you meditate, you, know, you can use this just to cut through the habit, habitual way of the mind, just to believe every thought and attach to every thought, become caught into moods and mental proliferation that just fills the mind and takes us far away from the Four Noble Truths. As someone would say the other day, they can just sit, meditate and just think themselves into a bad mood without much trouble at all. All the data, the information is there. And if they're not careful, it's such a strong habit. Although they're sitting down to meditate, they actually just think themselves into a bad mood and they go away from their meditation feeling unhappy, negative. And that can last the whole day in the complete opposite of what we're aiming for. So we have to be careful with this mind, train it and use these kinds of perceptions to cut through some of these habits, wake ourselves up, help us to cut through, let things go, not to believe so willingly, so easily in our own mood and our own thoughts. As you practice mindfulness more, and you just look at how easily our mind falls into impressions and judgments based on just a, a quick sense impression and we immediately form an opinion, a like, a dislike, wanting, not wanting, good, bad. <clears throat> you know, as you practice more mindfulness and you're waking up to your own mind and what's going on. You see how easily the mind falls into those kind of quick judgments, jump into conclusions about things. And if we never investigate more closely, then it becomes maybe a rigid, firmly held opinion that's never really been tested. It's just based on very flimsy data, information, we do that all the time. 
partly it's just our old karma that we've done it before, so we do it again. So we judge people on just a little bit of a contact with them. We judge the sensual world around us, you know, very ordinary things, like food or climate, places we go. You know, often our first impression, we just latch onto that and think that's true, that's the way it is. It may be totally false or at least leading us in a false direction. Mindfulness practice will help you catch that, unravel some of that habitual judging and forming opinions about everything. And then you realize how uncertain the mind is and our impressions and opinions can be. And just use that reflection of it's not sure. So the opinion forms, but then you remind yourself it's not sure. Maybe this is true, but maybe not. And this is a wise approach to the human mind, which loves to fall into delusion, habit, dullness, running on autopilot all the time. And that's why we suffer so much. And people who don't suffer are people who have established mindfulness, restraint, and they're using wisdom to test their experience rather than just fall into beliefs and opinions about everything. Someone was telling me about teaching, <coughs> sort of illustrates this about how they're you know, teaching people, kids particularly, not to make judgments or judge other people too quickly. There's a story of a little girl who has, sitting at a table has two apples and the mum comes into the room and thinks, oh, two apples, maybe I can have one. So she asks her daughter for an apple. And the daughter looks at the apples and then she takes a bite out of one and then a bite out of the other. Immediately the mum is disappointed in her mind, thinking, oh, my daughter's so greedy. She's eating the apples because she doesn't want me to have any. But she didn't say anything because she didn't want to criticize her daughter, but she was sad in her heart. But after a few moments, the daughter, having chewed both apples, said, this one is the sweetest, tastes the nicest. You have that, mum. I'll keep the other one. <clears throat> so the mum felt really ashamed inside that she'd misread, misjudged her daughter. If you think how often we do that with our own state of mind, we believe something and just without questioning, without investigating more, that becomes the fixed view or the fixed reality of the mind at that time. Not just other people, judging ourselves, judging life, judging the world. Whatever's happening, because we don't see mainair, the impermanence, the uncertainty of our own mental states, and we just believe them, and they come become fixed, so they keep reoccurring. If you never t 
test them or look more deeply, well then that becomes a fixed view that's limiting you and conditioning you. You see how it happens, say if you're in a, one monastery and you're not very happy for maybe a multitude of reasons, but then you go to another monastery, just the relief of leaving one monastery, the first one, you go to the new one, you think, oh, this is a good place, great place. Then how quickly that perception can change, often because the conditioning process is still there. So very quickly you form maybe negative perceptions about the new place and back to square one. Yeah, in every aspect of life this is going on. Just with posture, say you do a lot of sitting meditation, the body gets tired, the mind gets dull and fed up with dukkha vaitana, so you say, I'll do more walking. You do more walking, after all you get tired walking, so you want to sit again. And just the most simple thing, like changing posture, you're seeing how uncertain the mind is. We project our state of mind onto our experience. So often we're looking, you know, if we're in a negative state of mind, then we'll look for things to back that up. Reinforce the opinion because of the attachment. It's like putting a set of dark glasses on. So if you're in a negative mood, then you'll see the negative in everything around you. Even when something is good, we won't see the good. Particularly living in Sangha, then we tend to do this all the time. We jump to conclusions about other people. Sometimes we get to know people well and then we start to form opinions and think they're always like that. And maybe there's some we like, some we don't like. And that colors our view to the point where we don't see anything outside our own view. Again, we have to keep looking and learning from experience. Often, if you open up, you realize, you know, if, everyone, if you're in a monastery, then everyone will have a lot of good qualities. You can't live in a monastery without good qualities. Even if other aspects of people's personality covers that over, we pick on one aspect we don't like. And sometimes you have to step back and notice the good qualities, remind yourselves of them balance up your mind and not to fall into the mind that judges, makes quick, forms quick impressions, quick comes to quick conclusions about other people. And this is all part of our mental training and learning to be a bit sharper and more mindful. And just using simple reflections on impermanence, not self cessation. You're watching your own moods <clears throat> come and go. And what comes and goes is obviously not that real, not that substantial, because it's gone. And I know some monks just use that as a meditation. They just watch the cessation of their different mind states, sense impressions. They just keep focusing on that. They become very mindful. Just aware of the, the ending of different thought patterns, feelings in the body, mental states. 
just to keep observing how that's passed, that's gone. Observing cessation it brings a lot of wisdom, a lot of clarity. It doesn't mean to say you can't think or use your mind, but you're wary of believing every thought or grasping hold of every thought, every mood, or every feeling in the body. And sometimes we have to look and see what our mind finds helpful to bring it to see the, the Dhamma, to see the nature of experience, and then keep applying that, coming back to some basic reflections that we found useful, keep applying them over and over again. Sometimes it's to do with you know, monastic structure. We have a certain amount of hierarchy just based on who gets ordained first, who's been here longest. And it's correct, if someone's been in the robes longer, then they will naturally have certain experiences, knowledge, certain position perhaps, sense of responsibility, duties that they perform. Someone new may not have those. But with that sometimes comes privileges or what perceived freedoms or privileges. So then the person who's newer thinks, oh, they get all the privilege I don't. It never happens to me. Very easy to think like that. Again, you have to test your perceptions, your impressions of things. It's not always as the mind would think, you look more carefully. When you become more senior, often you look back and think, mm, when I was a young junior monk, I should really have used my time even more skillfully. I had so much free time. Generally, as you become more senior, you have less free time, more responsibility. Sometimes when we are more new to the practice, junior, we feel kind of, when we, things are not going well, we, it's easy to feel sorry for oneself. Feel like nobody cares. Maybe we don't have so much contact with lay people. Not so much, don't feel so important in our role in the monastery or as a monk. You can come up and so start feeling sorry for yourself. Feel lonely, unimportant. You know, these kind of perceptions are magnified when we don't have much mindfulness and insight, then it will magnify in the mind. Becomes maybe our sense of who we are for a period of time. So then you look at everything that happens around you and it seems to reinforce that. Other people seem to have, have an easier, easier time. Things go well for them, not good for me but good for them. They seem to get more things, somehow have more requisites, better requisites, more friends, more exciting, interesting times. You know, the mind can go on and on proliferating in a negative way, just feeding the same old perception. These are the very, very attachments we have to look at, investigate, you see how real it is.
even if there's some truth to it, maybe there's reasons for it, as I say. Maybe when you're a junior monk, you don't have so much responsibility and so much, don't know so many people. So it may seem like don't have such a big role or not doing so much in our practice. But it's just a perception that we add on to things. Somebody smart might be chuckling and saying, oh, I have so much free time. This is really good. Often very simple perceptions brought up and applied skillfully can be very useful to set the right attitude for meditation. If we're always trying to succeed through willpower and setting up ideals, how we think our meditation should be or where we should be at, compared with other people or our our ideals, then obviously very easy to get disappointed if we just bring our mind back to the present moment, just work on establishing mindfulness from moment to moment and not believing every thought and every impression that comes up, it's a much more practical approach and it will cut through the habit of always forming opinions and getting caught into moods. The way Ajahn Chah used to encourage monks to practice you. Whatever comes your way, just be mindful of it. Just know it. Because it's out of mindfully knowing, mindfully being aware of experience. All the other dhammas, all the insights, the liberating insights come. So just keep coming back to developing the mindfulness, the knowing. Out of that, true wisdom will come. Whatever happens, good or bad, in the end, most of it we can't really control very much anyway, but we can control our own mind, bring out mindfulness. So sometimes uh, Ajahn Chah and his disciples would say, your goal is to be able to not give in to any reaction of favor or dislike, approval, disapproval, wanting, not wanting, not to display such a reaction, not to give in to it. Even if it comes in the mind, it's just a little ripple of the mind. You know it, but you also know it's not sure. It's impermanent, it's not self. So the mind allows it to pass by, cease. To get that ability established so nothing can get you. It's almost like a game just to make sure nothing can overturn the mind's equanimity and the mindfulness. Obviously, like any game, there's sometimes you lose, but it's only a temporary loss, a bit like snakes and ladders. You slide down the snake, then you start climbing up the ladders again, <coughs> moving on. But that's your goal, is to develop that evenness of mind to deal with all experience whether it's moods and internal 
mental states arising or the external changing conditions of the world. Sometimes we have to learn to develop a sort of a wait and see attitude, patiently waiting and seeing. What is this if something's come up in the mind, not just to jump in and believe it and become it, but just to notice, and what is this? Why do I feel like this? What is it? How long will it last? If it's external conditions, you know, the way other people are behaving or events around you, climate, different situations we're in, traveling, whatever, again, wait and see. When we're anxious and not very peaceful, we always try and work it out through thinking. We want to know all the information, get everything planned, be on top of it, be in control, but you can never know everything. You can never have all the information available. But there's one quality of mindfulness, clear comprehension, it's giving you the the right preparation for whatever may arise. And whatever arises in your own experience, physical, pleasure, pain, illness, health, mental, the restlessness, the changes of mental states, feeling inspired, feeling bored and fed up, feeling angry, feeling like you have meta for all the beings in the world, whatever, you're, you're waiting and seeing and watching and learning. Judging other people, they're good, they're bad, they're right, they're wrong, is not sure. on Tudong when many many years ago staying out on, in the forest on my own meditating fairly happily it's quite a hard experience it's a place where there's very little food not much comfort I planned to be out there for maybe a month or two and then during the middle of this time a very clear vision of a senior monk and one of Lumpur Cha's senior disciples called Lumpur Jan, who I'd known quite well in my early years in Ubon. I was now with Ajahn Anand. And I knew he was sick, but I had this clear vision of him lying dead on a bed with monks around him. I thought, oh, is this a premonition? Is he going to die? So I decided to cut my tudong short, go back to what Mahjan. And I told Ajahn Anand why. And he didn't seem too interested because it was only my own personal vision, just a personal feeling. So I went to my kuti and I thought, hmm, what was all that about? Why did I leave my tudong? But then 
that night there was a phone call from Ubon and Lumpur had indeed passed away. So I heard the news and some of the monks said, well, maybe we'll go up to Ubon because the tradition is when a teacher you know and respect dies, often you go quite quickly to visit and pay respects to the corpse, joining join in any funeral services. But no one said anything that there would be a trip to Ubon or anything. So I just back up my kuti thinking, oh, I came all this way back from Tudong and now he did die and now I won't be able to go. And I was just a junior monk, so I had no real say in the matter whether I could travel to Ubon or not. Obviously wanted to go, but you don't have always have that control to follow every wish. So I thought, hmm, I'm not going to get to go to this funeral. And I sort of sensed there were preparations being made, but nobody mentioned anything to me, so I just assumed maybe the senior monks in the monastery would go, I'd just be left behind. I remember meditating and then going to bed thinking, oh, I came all this way and now I'm not going to go. At 3 a.m., got a knock on my door. It was Ajahn Ananda saying, oh, we're off to Ubon. If you want to go, get your bowl and things together. We're leaving in 10 minutes. <laughs> Life is like that. You can go through, when you want to do something and you're not able to do it, for a while anyway, you get very frustrated, blame people, feel sorry for yourself, thinks the world is unfair, whatever. Then everything can turn around. Somebody you least expect comes to assist you or give you some support. In the bhikkhu life, it's quite often like that. You tend to generate good things and you're surrounded by people who do good things. So however bad things seem, usually you turn a corner and something else good can arise. You realize if you believe every thought or every emotion that comes up, it's just so deluding and so wrong. And you suffer unnecessarily. And then these very simple but direct teachings Lumpucha taught become very clear. clear. You know, it's not sure, wait and see, not sure, be patient. Such simple teachings, but always very effective in different situations. Whether we're just meditating on our own or dealing with other people, the events of the world, matters of health, family, whatever. And these are the kind of skills that we're learning, even though they're not very obvious skills on the outside. It's not something you can really write down on a CV or a piece of paper when you're trying to impress other people to get a job. Or oh, I'm skilled in letting go. <laughs> I'm skilled in contemplating that everything is not sure. <laughs> Doesn't have much value in the world. But in terms of Dhamma it does, Dhamma Vinaya. And you know, other practitioners recognize it, somebody who can let go, maintain their evenness of mind in different situations, doesn't give in to the complaining mind, doesn't give in to the worrying mind, doesn't give in to the mind that feels sorry for itself, 
doesn't give in to the mind that's just always desiring things that will bring pleasure and excitement. And these are the kind of ways we measure our practice. There's often something you only know for yourself, others may see it or not in you. It's not something you can really boast about or tell the rest of the world. It's just something you know, but the whole point is this kind of knowledge brings you contentment. So you don't have to tell anyone, because true contentment is a state that doesn't need to be told. It's just the fruits of the practice. And you know when you're content, and you know when you're not. So I'll leave you with some these reflections tonight. <laughs>